You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials or even starting to appear on shelves or by prescription or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Future Tech and Future Tech Health podcast. I have uh, Victoria Webster-Wood. She's an assistant professor of mechanical engineering, also with a courtesy appointment in biomedical engineering at Carnegie Mellon University. And uh, her research is interesting, so I'll let her describe it. But uh, Vicki, first, thanks for coming to the podcast. How are you doing? Hi, Richard. Thanks for having me. I'm doing well. Yeah, it looks like you're working on the integration of um, organic material into robots, essentially, making a uh, I guess a cyborg-esque type of arrangement, but how would you describe it? What are you What are you working on? Yeah, so my lab is the Biohybrid and Organic Robotics Group here at Carnegie Mellon, and what we're really doing is we're trying to create an engineering science for the use of renewable organic materials in robotics and other technology platforms, uh, and we're really driven by this fundamental question of how do you capture these amazing capabilities that we see in animals in safe, robust, autonomous robots. And the uh, opportunity we're exploring is the possibility of actually using living organic material as components of the robot, such as muscle tissue for actuators or neurons for controllers. Okay. Um, so what parts of, uh, what, what kind of organic material, I guess a lot of questions to ask, which ones are the most easily assimilatable or which ones make sense to you right now? Which one, which parts are you trying to assimilate? So we've really started by uh, originally focusing on muscle as an actuator. When uh, we started this work, I, I came to it from a background in bio-inspired robots where we were building the devices out of metals and plastics and traditional materials. Uh, but we were always trying to make our robots get around better in, in complex changing environments. And failing to, to really capture what we saw in the animals. Uh, and one reason we thought that we might be falling short was the actuators. Uh, so animals are inherently squishy, right? Uh, our muscle is squishy. <laughs> if we fall down, we get back up. Um, mm. And robotic actuators aren't as squishy. Uh, and so we started with muscle. And okay. moving forward from that now, we're also looking at um, – how we can use neurons as, as controllers and sensory cells as sensitive biosensors in these robots. Well, focusing on muscles first, what, what is an actuator? Can you, I mean, what's a simple definition of one? Yeah, so an actuator is uh, a device that 
basically lets something move. So um, common actuators in traditional robots would be things like motors that might be turning the wheels of a robot or uh, moving an arm joint of the robot. Uh, there's also actuators that are based on uh, air or fluid pressure that kind of expand these balloons to, to move uh, components of the robot. And in our robots, rather than using these, these mechanical materials, we're actually growing living muscle tissue uh, and then stimulating it so that it contracts. And in that way, we're able to move the legs of our robots. Okay. So um, what kind of things can happen to a mechanical actuator that's hard and doesn't have give, uh, you know, what things happen? Like the robot falls down and the actuator gets broken and how does it work in the human body, for instance, differently or in an animal? With uh, the the kind of traditional robotic actuators, uh, there a lot of them are inherently uh, rigid. They're hard, and so if you think about the the big industrial robots that we see in manufacturing, uh, if if one of those runs into a person or a piece of equipment, it's going to do a lot of damage because, as you say, it really doesn't have any give. Uh, whereas in an animal, uh, because we are able to move through this system of, of muscles pulling on different uh, parts of our bone and rotating our joints, the muscles act kind of like springs. And so if, if our arm runs into something, uh, we can kind of adjust to that contact and not necessarily damage what we bump into or damage ourselves because we've got that, that springiness to our, our muscles. So can I imagine like is one type of an actuator, let's say a piston, yeah, a piston would be a type of actuator. Okay, because that makes sense to me, because then if I dent a piston, it can't move through its range of motion properly, or it'll move all over the place. Or if, um, again, if I push against the side of a, of a piston, it may not, again, move properly. It may move off at an angle. But in an animal, let's say, you know, there's a piston-esque type thing, and it gets bumped, that won't dent, you know, the animal's piston-type actuator, and it can still function no problem, right? Exactly. So in the in the piston example, yes, if you if you bump the side of the piston and you make a dent, your piston may not be able to move to its full range of motion. If if you think about say your your bicep as kind of a piston like actuator, if you bump your bicep on the edge of a door, you may have a bruise, but your muscle is still going to work uh, and is going to be able to self repair, which is an interesting ability that we see in the living tissue that we just don't have in traditional actuators for robots. So how, um, you know, I could see, again, with the piston example, you know, for a robot, you can make it out of, you know, high-grade steel, so the piston's super strong. But in an animal, if it's, you know, okay, the good thing is it's resistant to bumps or dents, that kind of thing. But how does it get hard enough to act like a piston, for instance? How does the muscle harden up to do its job, you know, in a useful way? So in our research, we really aren't necessarily trying to achieve all of the capabilities that you can get with with these these engineered mechanical actuators in that uh, for the types of applications we're targeting, we really want to have the adaptability and flexibility that animals have. And animals really don't have these hard actuators. Uh, and it's actually an important part of how they're able to adapt to complex changing environments. Uh, there's some excellent videos on the internet of these mountain goats hopping all around these sheer cliff faces uh, that look like there's nowhere to climb. But because mm. they have this behavioral flexibility and these uh, compliant actuators, 
they can navigate in that environment that would be extremely difficult for traditional robots to handle. So you, you, I would guess you're starting with a robot actuator and you're trying to make it, I mean, one way to make it softer in my mind is like to shield it, you know, with softer material. But is there a way to inherently take the actual material that does the actuation and make it more flexible so that it can resist damage or, you know, abrasion or shearing or whatever other forces that impact it? So there is research in soft robotics that does look at using uh, softer engineered materials to build actuators. So, so using polymers uh, to, to build the actuator. And while that is one approach, those, those approaches still rely on these synthetic materials. And one of our, our real big targets in my research program is to really create green, renewable materials for robotics, essentially materials that we can farm to build our robots. And so we really want to use biocompatible, biodegradable materials. Uh, and so that rules out a lot of those polymers. So instead, what we do is rather than starting with the robot actuators, uh, rather than starting with a piston and trying to make it soft, we are building soft actuators more from the ground up by growing cells to form functional tissues that we can then get to contract. Um, huh. So the whole actuator itself will be composed of cells that you can, you know, put a current through and, and cause it to act like an actuator. Exactly. Um, and we've really approached this in two ways. We, we have one, one technique that we use where we grow individual cells into muscle tissues and then stimulate them electrically. But we've also developed a method where we can uh, harvest neuromuscular tissue circuits from uh, sea slugs, which are very robust marine animals. And with that, we're able to actually isolate very robust, structurally functional uh, biohybrid actuators that we can then integrate with our robots so that we can build uh, robots out of materials that perhaps are native to an ecosystem. So what, all right, what makes the sea slugs robust? Like what kind of activities do they do? And what kind of insults do they endure that they recover from? The sea slugs I work with are Aplysia californica, and they live in the intertidal region off of the southern coast of California. Uh, and so in this environment, they actually live in these, these tide pools and among the rocks. And uh, in that environment, the tide will go in and out, and they'll experience these, these turbulent water conditions. Um, when the tide is out, there may be a limited amount of water in their pool, the sun may beat down and the temperature of the water may change significantly, or it may rain and change the, the salt content of the water. And these, these animals are able to adapt to all of these changes, uh, which we see actually translates to these neuromuscular tissue circuits. So the robots that we're able to build out of these, these materials um, are capable of functioning over a, a very wide range of temperatures that... Um, many mammals would not really be able to accommodate as well. Yeah, I see what you mean. They could be salty, dry, salty, wet, cold, wet, non-salty, hot, salty. And that would dramatically change how they could, uh, you know, how they would have to act. Plus they're being sheared all the time by the tide and huh, they probably have sand mm -hmm. particles on them. And it makes sense. Interesting. Exactly. Yeah. And, huh. and one of the one of the applications that I'm really excited about with these robots that we're working towards 
is the idea of being able to create swarms of um, completely biodegradable robots for environmental monitoring and aquatic ecosystems where you could use organic tissues from uh, an aquatic animal native to an ecosystem to build the robot so that if the robots break down or interact with native sea life, uh, they're essentially just food. And so you can do minimum damage to the environment while providing a lot of these monitoring tasks that we really, really need devices able to do. Well, that's interesting. So if the robot like totally fails, it'll literally just become food for all the neighboring creatures and it won't impact the environment in a bad way at all. That's one of our goals. Huh. That's pretty interesting. Huh. Well, was this like, did you conceive of all this or is, uh, was there another scientist that conceived of this and you're just doing the implementation part of it? So I, I really got started in um, this area of biohybrid robotics uh, back when I was a PhD student at Cape Western Reserve University. And in that role, I had a, a really unique opportunity uh, to expand on the research that I was doing in the biologically inspired robotics lab to look at kind of the first steps towards this goal. Uh, in the beginning, we were just looking at how can we grow muscle cells into a functional tissue to actuate our robot. Um, and when we started that, we were actually using muscle cells from chicken eggs. And uh, we were able to build robots that could crawl around, but they had a lot of uh, restrictions. They needed really specific temperatures, uh, pHs, and osmotic conditions to function. And that's really what led to this idea of, well, can we use the sea slugs? Uh, can we use materials from the sea slugs to build these robots? Uh, and so uh, over the course of my PhD, we developed some initial prototypes in this. And uh, now this past year, last August, I started at Carnegie Mellon University uh, and established my own group, which is continuing to move this research forward. Oh, interesting. So what are some of the specific use cases you want for these, uh, you know, these sea slug-esque muscles? So we're really looking at uh, targeting applications where you may want a swarm of relatively low-cost uh, robotic devices that are not going to damage the environment. Um, and there's a lot of hazards in the aquatic ecosystems all around the world that we really do need platforms to keep a better eye on. Um, for example, uh, as a result of agricultural runoff, we're seeing increases in toxic algae blooms, which if those blooms get into the actual coastline can um, contaminate water supplies for, for local communities. Uh, and if we had robotic devices that could be deployed out into those bodies of water and essentially warn those communities of the incoming blooms, there could be uh, some, some definite advantages to that. Uh, additionally, we're looking at um, how could we locate sources of, of chemical hazards in um, kind of these co coastal marine environments. So, for example, if you have a leaking pipeline, um, how can you detect that earlier and, and know to deploy teams to fix it? You know, it's one thing that occurred to me is uh, you said when the, uh, when the robot breaks down, it becomes food any problems of it being food before it breaks down? Like what if, uh, I don't know, fish try to eat it while it's operating and peck away at it because it's, you know, it's essentially food to them, or is that not a concern? Right. So I think that that uh, almost certainly is definitely a concern. 
we've we've talked about as a, as a small research community on this the number of strategies to kind of handle that. Um, one strategy is if we can decrease the cost of these devices sufficiently by being able to really just farm materials for them, um, then we could release large enough swarms that if a couple of them get eaten, the swarm still functions. Uh, yeah. Another possibility is, again, taking inspiration from actual organisms and thinking about how can we include defense mechanisms. For example, the sea slugs, when they feel threatened, produce a uh, plume of, of this brilliant violet ink to essentially distract their predators so that they can get away. Uh, is there something mm -hmm. like that that we can do that is still biocompatible as a defense mechanism, but could deter predators from eating the robots? Hmm. It's weird. It's like you're almost trying to make a life form, but uh, but not quite. Very interesting. I guess there's a lot of considerations. So, so hmm. what have you seen so far? Is it super expensive to try to make these these robots or do the costs look like they're not going to be too terrible? Right now, it's really dependent on the approach. Um, for robots where we're trying to grow tissues from the, the single cell level and kind of build our own systems, uh, we do face all of the same limitations as kind of more biomedical tissue engineering research, which can um, require pricier re reagents at this point. Uh, right. We are looking at how we can use lower cost materials as the platform for the robot. Um, and then with the, with the sea slug approach, what we're looking at, you know, is, is can we farm the sea slugs and basically have a mechanism by which we uh, are able to harvest cells or tissues from sea slugs at different points in their, their uh, development to get the behavior that we want. And, that approach at this point looks like it, it, it could very well provide a low-cost approach to these types of robots, relatively compared to uh, other approaches in robotics. Well, how do you power these robots? Where does the material come from? Like, what are they used to function? So right now, the uh, field is very young. And so these robots are, I believe, almost exclusively functioning in research labs. Uh, and as such, most of them are running around in Petri dishes uh, filled with a liquid solution that contains uh, the right salt balances and uh, nutrients, such as glucose. And then the tissue is actually able to extract energy directly from that liquid environment. So they don't even really need batteries to function. Uh, and one challenge that, that that does mean moving forward that we're looking at is how do we package these devices, right? Essentially, they're going to need skins and um basically some sort of internal nutrient supply or a method by which they can extract more energy from the environment. And these are all very interesting research challenges the field's going to have to address moving forward. Well, like in the ocean, let's say, I mean, could, could you power any of these robots by using the, uh, the salt that's in the ocean? You know, maybe like a salt cell? You know, and most creatures, it seems like they, they need to eat some other organism or a plant in order to get that, that you know, denser energy in order to function. They don't just live off of seawater, but perhaps you could make these things live off of seawater or be powered by them. Right. So with the living tissue, we would certainly still need a, a source of energy, um, some sort of sugar, probably. Uh, in, in our right. media, we use glucose, but uh, that's one of the things that actual living organisms are extracting from their food supply is, is the carbohydrates and the proteins that they need to function. Um, so, so we would have to, for long-term missions, have a mechanism that lets our robots 
get those nutrients from the environment. Uh, and that's certainly something that we have not solved yet. Well, maybe that's what uh, the constraint on the life of the, uh, the robot, you know, maybe you package in, uh, you know, I don't know, a dead shrimp in with the robot and it can eat off that shrimp for a week and a half. And then that's it. And then the robot's dead and the, you know, the shrimp's been consumed. Now the robot itself becomes food. Maybe that's a way to do it. It's just, you know, onboard food that gives it a lot, keeps it alive for a certain period of time. Yeah, I think packaging the right energy supply with them will will be an important first step. And for limited missions, that can absolutely probably cover it. Um, And I do think one thing that as a research field that we're we're trying to be aware of as we develop these things is in using these organic materials, we really don't want to create fully functioning organisms that could uh, end up being invasive to the environments we're releasing them to. And so we really do want to have programmed lifetimes for the devices and the ability to uh, control and collect these devices as appropriate so that we are not introducing essentially an invasive species into the areas we're trying to monitor. Okay. Yeah. It's, uh, I know a project like this just seems that uh, it can go so many different ways. Like how do you, how do you manage the complexity of it? What have you had to do? Absolutely. I think that uh, one of the the challenges uh, that is a very fun part of being a new professor is picking which of all of these fun things we're going to look at first. Um, And so far, we've tried to really take an approach where we are uh, studying these organisms to identify bio-inspired design principles that could be applied to our biohybrid robots, but also have applications in more traditional robots. And then uh, in the near term, we're really looking at establishing these paradigms that will let us build organic actuators or organic controllers or organic sensors. And as we are able to make advances in each of those areas, that will give us the platforms and technologies that we need to really integrate them into complete robotic systems in the future. Okay. So what would be like a happy result for you, you know, in the next three to five years? So I think that what we're really trying to establish now is this this paradigm of harvesting materials from uh, renewable organisms and build a robot that's capable of performing a targeted task uh, with organic actuation, sensing, and control. Uh, and so for that, we're really starting with these these C-plug-based robots, where we're looking at um, building platforms that are able to locate uh, chemical sources or light sources in aquatic environments using the organic uh, sensor packages and actuators that we're developing. So I think in three to five years, our target is certainly to have these devices um, capable of performing these tasks and ideally packaged such that we can begin doing testing in real-world environments. Okay, very good. So what's the best way for people to get in touch, you know, see what the lab's doing, and uh, you know, ask questions? Uh, if, if people are interested in learning more, they can certainly check out our lab website at engineering.cmu.edu slash Borg, or follow us on Twitter at the CMU Borg. Okay, well, very good. Well, Victoria, thanks for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me. You're listening to the Future Tech Health Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Until I reached age 40, I never realized the obvious, that we all have medical issues, or we at least have a family member or close relation that had, has, 
or will have them in the future. Medicine and biological systems are the final frontier. Until we've conquered death, figured out how life began, cured cancer, and understood our purpose in the universe, there's a heck of a lot to talk about when it comes to our health. Future Tech Health means I'll be covering futuristic topics that are actually already in clinical trials, or even starting to appear on shelves, or by prescription, or available for your own use. We dive deep into stem cells, CRISPR-Cas9, the science of sleep, epigenetics, medical testing, cancer, ketogenic diets, stem cells, aging, regenerative medicine, and more. My goal for you, the listener, is to learn from these podcasts. You may very well learn something that may change the course of your life for the better, steer you towards a new career, or give you insight into addressing a serious medical problem. Remember, however, this podcast and its content is informational in nature only. No medical, tax, legal, financial, or psychological advice is being given. If you enjoy the podcast, please listen, subscribe, like, and share it with friends. Thank you.